Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm your host, Anna Halligan, and I'm live in the studio in Fort Bragg tonight, uh, assisted by Rich Culbertson, so thank you, Rich. Um, and I am, have a very uh, special guest with me this evening. I have Principal Scientist Eli Asarian with Riverbend Sciences, which is a Eureka-based consulting firm that is dedicated to the study of freshwater aquatic ecosystems. Riverbend Sciences focuses on studying water quality, hydrology, and aquatic ecology. Most of Eli's work has been focused on the Klamath, Trinity, and Eel River basins and has been focused on stream temperature, stream flow, and how they're related to precipitation and snowpack, wildfire smoke, and climate change. And with a little bit of rain that we just got, uh, I'm really excited to have this discussion tonight. We will be taking breaks periodically to address questions. So if a question crops up, please jot it down um, or hold it in your memory until we open the lines for callers. And again, special thanks to Rich for helping me out tonight. And thank you, Eli, for joining me in this discussion. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Great. Um, so I thought we might just start with a little introduction about you and your work. Sure. So I I, uh, I grew up in in just outside the town of uh, of Mendocino, um, near on on on, a, on Little Lake Road up above uh, Big River. So that that was my my introduction to to rivers was being as a kid and and and, and walking down walking down to the river and checking out the river. Um, and so, I, in the in the work that I do, I, I do lots of things related to the the science of, of rivers and streams. So I basically study how how they how they work, how 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 the water flows, what the temperature of the water is, and then try from that try to you know learn learn um, insights on on how we can better manage water and, and better manage our rivers by using the the data that lots of people collect to try to understand the the, the patterns in that data. And so, as you as you said, yeah, I focused uh, on the north coast of of, of California. So, including uh, some of the work in in the KZYX um, listening area. And and by the way, I've been not so much an active KZYX listener now, but um, I used to listen to it every day. Oh, great! Well, um, thanks again for the support for the radio station. Uh, so, I want to talk a little bit about drought and. Uh, Particularly, I read a, an article in the LA Times this spring that was talking about how in many places in the West, and particularly in Mendocino, um, there's uh, record-breaking low water years coupled by extremely high air temperatures. Um, and in this article, they talked about how you know a drought, by definition, is considered a temporary deviation from the norm driven by, you know, precipitation, and then that's usually exacerbated by water use practices. Um, however, if you look at long-term data sets, the data suggests that what we are experiencing is most likely not a deviation of the norm itself. And I know that you have really spent quite a bit of time and have authored a few studies that are really looking at long-term trends of precipitation and stream flow. So I'm curious, um, you know, 
Well, and also I've learned recently that the um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they collect data on air temperature and rainfall, and they've been doing that since the 1930s. They, um, until recently, they considered a 30-year period um, kind of a average a, as normal, and, and these 30-year normal time periods may not really be useful anymore. Um, the, so NOAA is now looking at, you know, 15-year increments as potentially being what we would consider normal precipitation. So I'm curious, in your research, you know, when is a drought not a drought? In what time frame should we consider when we're talking about what is normal? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. I think the first thing that I would say is that California naturally has a highly variable climate. You might read a statistic that might say something like, you know, the average uh, rainfall for an area is 30 inches or 40 inches or 50 inches. And and like you say, that's, a, that's an average over, say, a 30-year period or something like that. But in any given year, it's actually pretty rare that um, any given year has average rainfall, right? If the average rainfall is 40 inches, uh, you know, the rainfall could be bounced around anywhere from 20 inches up to up to 60 inches. And so it's a, it's a more so than other places in the world, California has a naturally variable climate. So there's always been that that level of, of that the sort of bouncing around randomness from year to year. And so in, in, in some respects, it's like a it's like a roll of the roll of the dice, right? We sort of know what numbers are, are on the dice. And so you have a, you know, it's going to come up in some range, but you don't know what it's going to be in any particular year and the timing of when the rain is going to fall, which I mean, we'll talk more about that later. The timing of when the rain falls is really important, not just how much falls in a year. Um, and so when we look at what the, what the climate models predict for the North coast of, of California, and also look back at the historical record on on what the what the patterns have, have been. There's always been highly variable precipitation, and that highly variable precipitation is likely to continue to be highly variable. What I think is really changing the most is the temperatures. So the, the air temperatures are, are are definitely they have risen, and and they're and they're likely to. Um, continue to rise, and you know, we can talk more later about how, how much it's likely to rise. Um, and I, I mentioned the analogy earlier of, of the dice, and so really one of the ways that I, I think about, about climate change is that it's changing the numbers that are on the dice. It's loading the dice, it's taking out the cool years, and it's it's replacing them with more extreme high years. So we're still going to have the variability, but but it's going to be warmer and warmer. Um, and there is, you know, some indication that the precipitation is becoming more variable. If you look back at, at recent years, obviously we've had a lot of dry years in the last ten years or so, but we also had some some pretty um, pretty wet years. And because of that that variation in rainfall, it, it's it, it is hard to say what what's a new normal and what is uh, just bad bad chances. Um, you know, some of the stuff. Uh, a lot of our rain could come in just a few storms in a year. And so it's just 
some extent happens you know, on on you know where does the where does how do the how does the atmosphere work and those few storms that are coming in do they do they do they veer you know in our direction or do they do they shift to the north or, or to the south and, and what we actually get um well, yeah. On the subject, or we could talk more about the thirty-year thing. I guess I didn't really answer that question, but oh, that's okay. Um, well, I th it was—it's interesting today um, at work. I actually had uh, a inexperienced to watch a presentation about some data that's been collected in the Casper watershed, and they were talking about how their data reflects what I think we're seeing across the West, but with the the timing of rainfall that. Um, you know, particularly in the last six to ten years, we're seeing um, real shifts in in the timing of our rainfall coming in later, and then that's also resulting in a reduced um, or condensed um, overall time frame that we can receive precipitation here on the coast. Most of the you know most of the precipitation we get here is, is in the form of rainfall, yeah. um, and so. Um, I'm just, you know, a lot of your research is really focused on, on, on the relationship between precipitation and, and stream flow. And so I'm curious if you can talk to us a little bit about, um, what you've observed, um, with, you know, these kinds of, um, new trends, um, and how yeah. that affects the, the relationship between these factors. Yeah. So um, I think a good bit of context is to think about um, what's called an annual water budget. And so um, you can you, you start with the, the precipitation that, that falls from the sky, that, that, that 40 inches or, or, or whatever it is, and then try to, to, to figure out and quantify what, are, what, what sort of bins and buckets does that, does that water go into, how much of it is... Um, you know, used by by the trees and the, and the vegetation. How much of it uh, soaks into the ground and then gets into the groundwater and then leaks out into the streams and becomes becomes flow water flow in the, in the rivers and streams. And if you if you look at that annual water budget, what you see is that obviously we have a rainy season and a, and a dry season, right? And so most of the most of the action in the the water budget. Well, all of the inputs are, by definition, happening in the in the rainy season, right? That's when the precipitation happens. And then, sometime you know, the rain kind of tapers off. Depends on the year, right? But in April and in May, and then you know, by June is is quite dry. And then it doesn't rain again until the rains start again in the um, you know September, October, November, December, depending on the year. Um, and you know, when water in in the wintertime, when it's raining, water is is relatively abundant on on the north coast, right? We don't really have most of the time we don't have a water scarcity problem in the winter. When we have a water scarcity problem is in, is in the, the summer, right? And especially as we get later into the summer, the season that we're that we're coming into now of, of August and, and September, and then if it doesn't rain, you know that persists into into October or, or even later. Um, that's when the water scarcity is, and things like um, changes in the um, temperature, the, the rising temperature, the climate change, and the warming affects 
um, most strongly um, the summer flows because those are just kind of the most the most sensitive and they're also the most sensitive to to human uses and so i think we need to pay a lot of attention to what's happening um in that summer period because that's the that's the time when the water is scarce and there's limited supply for both for for people to you know to use for 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 drinking water and for irrigation and all the other things that we need water for and for the the things that live in the rivers and streams like the fish and so um Sorry, I'm kind of losing track of what the beginning of your well, <laughs> your yeah, that that's great because I'm just sitting here biting my tongue, trying getting ready to ask you more questions. So, uh, so yes, you know that summertime is when there's this kind of um, high demand for water resources yeah. from from all sorts of different water users, whether that's people, whether it's um, plants. Um, in, or aquatic organisms or other wildlife. Um, and one of the things that, um, that really struck me in the presentation I watched today is that, is that you're right, like right now in August, although this, because we got, we, we, we did receive less rainfall this year, this winter. Um, so our stream flows are incredibly low. Um, we also didn't get very much, um, late seasonal rains to help kind Mm -hmm. of like top off our um, water reservoirs. But um, one of the things that that was observed um, in the data collected in Casper was that in October and November, um, because we're not getting, because the rainy season's being delayed, that that stress on stream flow is actually being prolonged. So it's it's almost like the, the late summer and the fall now are that period of high demand has now been extended because um, our precipitation time frame has been condensed. Um, I'm wondering if if you've observed that too, and um, and I also was hoping that you could talk a little bit about, you know, like what happens when stream flows become critically low, like you know, how do those low stream flows have impact fish and wildlife? Yeah. So um, it does. It does um, seem that there's some indications that, yeah, as, as you mentioned, that the that the dry season is 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 lengthening. That the period of time when we don't get significant rain um, is getting longer. Although it does bounce around. <laughs> One of the analysis I did was back in, I think, the year 2013 or 2014. And so I did this analysis looking at the past 50 years. And one of the things I noticed was, hey, it hasn't rained in September in like 13 years in a row or something like that. Like from, from 2000 to 2013, in the area that I was looking at, the North Coast, um, it didn't. It really was no September rain for, for 13 years or so. So I was like, oh, that's a really interesting result. So I, so I, I put that out in a report. And then, of course, the next year, it, we got a nice rainstorm in September, <laughs> and since there was a there was a period of a few years where we did get some nice rains in September, although I think that has um, kind of flipped back in the last few years. So to some extent, these things are are are, are you know are, are, are variable and, and, and cyclical. Um, but even if or or I guess regardless of when it starts to rain, when as the climate gets warmer. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the vegetation uses more and more water and um, people use more and more water. You know, you think about if you live in hot climate or it's a hot day and you want to keep your, your lawn green or your garden growing, you got to water more, right, when, when it's a hot day than when it's a cool day or if you live in a hot place versus a cool place. And so as the climate warms, um, I think it, even for an equivalent amount of, of a rainstorm in the fall, it's going to take the, 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 the land is kind of more dehydrated. It's more dried out at the end of the summer. It's always been dry, but I think it's, it's getting even drier and there's kind of more, more demand there that, that, that those first bits of water that fall are going to get sucked up by the soil and, and, and by the vegetation because they're, they're drier than they've been in, in past decades. And so I think that lengthening of the dry scene is, is kind of a double whammy, right? Where the precipitation is possibly getting more variable and, and that the season of, of no rain is extending. But then also once it does start raining, the land is starting from a drier place. And so it takes longer to kind of, Re- rehydrate and for that water then to sort of get past the, the top of the soil and get past the trees and get down into that um, deep groundwater where then it will, it will leak out into the streams and increase the flow in the streams. Um, I think that answers that question. And then you'd also ask about the effects of the of the low flow on um, organisms in the, in the stream. So I guess the, the first thing to say is that um, if you're if you're a, if you're a critter like a fish that that lives in a stream, it often that stream only has to go dry for a few minutes, right, to kill most of the things that are in that stream. And so, one issue when the stream gets low is it becomes more vulnerable to um, effects from people who are using water. So, let's just say on on the stream there's maybe you know, 10 landowners up and down that particular creek. And when the, the flow is really, really low in the late summer and, and, and fall, if everyone turns their pumps on, their diversion pumps at the same time, you could, um, you know, pull out of the water, out of the out of the stream, big parts of it could, could go dry and, and, and kill the things that are living in there. Even if then two hours later, people turn their pumps off and the flow comes back and someone walking up to that creek might look at it and say, oh, it looks fine. You know, I don't, I don't see a problem here. Um, so that's, that's, I guess, the most, the most, well, the most acute effect would be, you know, the creek just drying up for, for, um, you know, weeks or months in a row. And then one step back from that is, you know, um, periodic dehydration from, from excessive diversions, or maybe even just on a really, really hot day, maybe the trees use more water and, and suck it up. And then um, one step, Below that would be sort of chronic effects where, you know, the water can get stagnant and, um, you know, it's the, it's water um, flowing in, um, tumbling into a pool that provides the reaeration to um, make sure that the water is oxygenated. It's most, most animals that live in streams, they need, they need oxygen to, to breathe. That's where they get the water. And so as flow gets lower and lower and lower, it also tends to decrease oxygen levels. And if that water is, also, if it's um, if it's exposed to the sun, if it's not shaded, then it can um, it can increase its um, vulnerability to, to warming up and getting too hot. And you know, a lot of our um, river animals, like like salmon and other fish, they require cold water. 
Right. And, and, you know, higher temperatures also makes them more vulnerable to disease and, um, and other kinds of, um, kind of illnesses. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, you know, some of the take homes that I'm taking in right now is there probably is no normal, (laughs) you know, or we, maybe we're wasting our time trying to think about what normal is anymore because, we are in a period of transition and the, and the climate cl- climate patterns are changing. Um, and, and as you were just describing, you know, one of the main ways that that's happening um, is with the quantity of water and precipitation that's falling and it's falling at different times and, and in different ways. And what's interesting is that, you know, the ways that water has been developed in the West for human use, those, those type, that infrastructure was established for a completely different climate pattern, right? Like water was developed in the West during a, a, a geologic time period. And I think that's one thing that as humans, we're really gonna have to start thinking about, we're gonna start, have to start thinking about time in a really different way. But when when water infrastructure was developed in the West, it was during a, a relatively wet period in the overall climate history um, of this area. And so, the programs and infrastructure that we rely on currently do not reflect the climate patterns that we're experiencing. So what actions do we need to take to make sure that the money that is spent to help water users isn't wasted on inefficient old systems? How should we be thinking about water management today? Yeah, so I think one good place to start here is by contrasting the north coast with other parts of california or or places in the in the southwest where on the north coast we have you know relatively low um population density of of people and relatively abundant water at those annual annual time scales um so really what we have is is a, a water scarcity problem during times of year during the during the summer and the fall and so one of our one of our keys is to um is to develop new um storage as you say we you know our our infrastructure is kind of developed in a relatively wet um climate period of the past past century and especially the the mid part of the 20th century i think from like the 40s through the until around the 77 drought that was that was quite a wet a wet period and so we've been able to some extent rely on um, the natural storage of the, of the groundwater and, and the soils and you know pulling water out of the streams and out of the rivers um, during the summer we've been able to rely on that and as the climate warms that's going to get less and less reliable and so what we need to do is to build sources of, of storage whether that is um, you know ponds or tanks or um, you know offstream reservoirs there's there's kind of different um, depending on the you know the amount of water you need to store there, there's better and worse ways to do it but so I wanted to contrast that with places like the the San Joaquin Valley down in the Fresno Bakersfield area that's a really dry climate and their water scarce on an annual basis so down there building storage is not really going to help them that much it might you know every once every few years they might be able to capture some of a larger flood event that they're not able to capture now but 
really in that situation, what they really need to do is reduce water, water demand, and you know, maybe unfortunately take some some agricultural land out of production because there just isn't enough water to support it, and the ground is literally sinking from how much water is being pumped out of it. And so, we contrast that to the North Coast. We 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 really need to focus on storage and enhancing the amount of of of, of storage, both. Um, sort of direct storage that we can control like the ponds and the tanks and then also indirect storage of maybe trying to find ways to enhance groundwater recharge and that type of thing um, and of course we need to to use water in efficient ways we don't want to we don't want to be wasting water so it's i think we need to pursue kind of a you know a dual track of of increasing the storage that we have and also using the water more more efficiently yeah so um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, winter water storage, uh, in particularly yeah. because I hear a lot from different hydrolog- hydrologists and climate scientists that, you know, really, if you look at rainfall in the state over long periods of time, and, and even more recently, the amount of rainfall that the state is receiving annually is not actually varying that much but the timing and the locations where it's falling and the forms that it's falling in whether it's snow or rain are changing so for you when we talk about storage um one question i have is is for is this something and and maybe in particular you know in relation to to the mendocino coast uh, or mendocino county overall um is storage more of a, a, a localized storage or or are you or is it a storage can be two things right like it could be a huge reservoir for municipal supply or and is that what we need to be looking towards or should we really be thinking kind of at, at, at the home base level like making sure we have water security you know per individual use yeah yeah, I, I think it. I think it depends on, on this on the situation, right? Um, because, well, so I guess one thing to point out is that, you know, there's parts of the, well, there's large parts of California that have kind of an interconnected water system, right? And we can shift water from from Northern California down to Southern California, or or you know, around between different areas. But Mendocino County does not have those. Um, connections where we could import water from other other areas really other than i guess the, the diversion of the eel river um through the potter valley project into um you know um lake potter mendocino. valley yeah lake mendocino mm-hmm. that you know then is used in mendocino and sonoma and marin, marin counties that's really the only significant um water import and even that is just trying from a relatively small small area and so i think that's part of why um you know really mendocino county and the and the russian river you know water system is 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 one of the most you know acutely stressed in the state this year of of anywhere because because it's not connected to that larger system of those huge reservoirs that are in the sierras like you know um, shasta dam and um what's the one on the feather river by like oroville Mm -hmm. that, that hold just years and years worth of water um, the water systems in Mendocino County are really not not set up to store multiple years of of water. I don't think, or at least you know, they're, they're, they're vulnerable to um, years. And, and we've had pretty two pretty dry years in a row, really, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the question of like what what type of solutions is, is appropriate in, in different places, you know, when you have a lot of people living relatively close together in a small area, it's, you know, probably more cost effective to develop more of a centralized um, system of a, you know, a larger um, reservoir, and then you can run pipes around to everyone to, you know, deliver that water. Obviously, you want to be really careful about <laughs> where you place that water. I mean, where you place that reservoir and what you're, what you're, what you're flooding, and you know, really a lot of the good sites to build dams have already, at least the large dams, those places have already been developed, and there's not a lot of places left in California that are really good sites to build large dams so we're probably talking more you know kind of smaller and, and medium-sized dams um and so if you kind of compare that to you know more of a rural landscape where you've you know got larger parcels and people are living further apart then that's more the the, the other side when you want to be thinking more about um collections of, of tanks at the individual landowner level um and you know, small ponds and reservoirs for the for the irrigation demand, and then there's probably something in the middle, right? Where if you have a a community of of ten or twenty people that are all on one one system, so I think it's it's the solutions are, are kind of variable depending on how many people there are and what their situation is, is and what what resources are available. Um, great. Well, um, I, so I want to ask you a little bit about, I want to ask you one more question and then we should probably take some calls, um, from any listeners. But one of the things that always comes up in this discussion about water use is, is kind of the environmental demand from vegetation. Um, and I had an interesting conversation on a previous show with David Drawley where we kind of talked about how really, you know, our, our carnivorous forests around here aren't really tapping into the same water sources, subsurface, that, that like we would rely on as for human consumption or that would drain into a, into a stream system. They're kind of two different kinds of, um, of water that are stored subsurface. Um, but one of the things that we really see, you know, a signal that you can see in a hydrograph um, and something that um, has been studied, um, particularly in relation to, to forestry practices, is kind of um, changes in the rates of evapotranspiration and how that affects stream flow. And, and so as we're experiencing hotter temperatures, I would imagine evapotranspiration rates are being impacted by that and that that in and of itself has an effect on stream flow. And so I was wondering if in any years, you know, if you could speak to that at all and, and, and if you have have observed any changes um, in stream flow as a result of, of, of evapotranspiration and warmer air temperatures. Yeah, so um, trying to think of the best way to answer that. So yeah, you're, you're, you're right that um, when, as the climate warms, the vegetation in the forests are going to use more, more water. So that's, that's kind of one element of it. And then the other is that over time we have changes in um, vegetation types as, as, the, as the forests and the vegetation respond to the factors that influence it. Um, so we should probably talk talk about that as well so that's things about you know forest forest management and 
timber harvest and, and, and fire management and that type of stuff and fire exclusion. Um, so there, there's kind of um, two separate issues there, but but focusing in on that, um, on that, that the climate piece. Um, I, so I have done these analysis where I, you know, I take the precipitation and, and stream flow for a bunch of different um, watersheds where we have long-term measurements and then develop these statistical models to um, predict what is, you know, for a given amount of precipitation, how much flow would you expect to see in the stream or, or in the river? And there definitely are places where um, particularly that um, the, the late summer and fall flows, where those flows are, are declining, where the same amount of precipitation now even even adjusting for for the timing of when that precipitation falls, that, that same amount will produce less um, less summer flow now, and it's pretty hard to like parse out exactly why that happens, and and, and it's I think a combination of a bunch of different factors. Um, you know, obviously, if there's been a big increase in the human population density in an area, and people are using more and more water. During those um, late summer, early fall periods, um, you know that increased water use by people can cause the long-term decline in, in stream flow at, at those, you know, over over decades, um, as well as, as changes in, in the structure of that vegetation. So, one really interesting sort uh, of case study is um, Bull Creek. Probably a lot of the listeners have have been over to the Rockefeller um, Forest in southern Humboldt County along the, the 101 corridor and um, in Humboldt Redwoods State Park on um, Avenue of the Giants. The Bull Creek is a is a state park there, and the lower part of the watershed is all um, old-growth redwoods, and the upper part was, was harvested in, the I think, the 40s and, and 50s, and then they had, you know, big giant floods, and the landscape just kind of melted. It was just kind of the worst kind of erosion you could, you could possibly imagine just whole hillsides melting and um not a lot of trees growing really because they were all they were all cut down um and and during that in this the um stream flow gauge that measures the amount of of flow in in the in the creek there in bull creek was installed right around the right after the the harvest and the summer base flows back then were actually higher than they are now and and that creek bull creek has shown some of the 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 strongest um, decreases in summer flow of, of any place around um, as those trees have, have grown back. And there really hasn't been a lot of, there hasn't been a lot of, of, of management to, 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 to manage the, the density of those forests or to have prescribed fire or other things like that. And so it's just grown back in this incredibly dense forest. It was you know, much more dense than it was um, originally before it was, before it was harvested. And the flows have really um, declined a lot there. Um, some of that could be fog, also. Um, there's been some research in the um, looking at coring the old growth redwoods. You can, you know, put a tree core in there and extract out and measure the growth rings. And um, that was some folks from Humboldt State University, and they found that the growth rate of those trees since the 70s, I think, like the last 50 years, has been the fastest in the last. I don't remember what it was, the last thousand years or something like that. And they think it's because there's less fog, so there's more sunlight. And those trees are, are down in the um, alluvial flats along the creek, so they're not 
they're not water stressed so much. Um, and it's kind of an interesting, interesting note. So, you know, the, yeah, the factors that influence the long-term changes in flow vary from site to site, depending on, you know, how many people are there and is the forest and vegetation relatively stable or is it, is it changing over time? Um, at some point today, we should, we should talk about the invasion of um, Douglas fir conifer forests into, into oak woodlands. Um, yeah. Um, hold that thought for a second, because I have some follow-up questions, but we do have a caller yeah. on the air. So let's Great. take our first question. Okay, caller. Um, Hi. You're on. Hi. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm fascinated by your discussion, and I really appreciate um the discussion about water, and I just got back from uh, North Coast River up on the Salmon River, and I've noticed over going there for a number of years how warm the Salmon River has become. And I know this is a real problem in the Klamath, and I think it's a problem in a number of other rivers in terms of um, water quality, and it's definitely affecting the salmon and the other fish species that live in the rivers. And I thought I would just kind of, um, I'd like to ask your guest in terms of water quality overall and temperature especially, in terms of um, how we can maintain the quality of the water for all of the species that rely on the rivers. So thank you again for your discussion. It's very, very interesting to me and, and I think for a lot of other people. Thank you. Well, great. Um, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, you, and you've asked a great person because Eli did a study on climate driven increases in water temperatures in the Salmon River. So Eli, I'll let yeah. you respond. <laughs> it's almost like almost like we planned that call, um, which we didn't. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. And so the Salmon River. Um, I'll, I'll contrast it to Mendocino County, where the hydrology in Mendocino County um, is almost entirely driven by by um, by rain and not by snow. You, know, you get farther into the eastern part of the county, and the you know the the Yolabolis and Snow Mountain, and, and there definitely is some snow in the higher elevations um, to the to the in the eastern part of the county. But for the most part, it's it's rain that is the form that precipitation falls. Where in in the Salmon River. Salmon River has a much wider um, band of elevations. So along the river corridor at the mouth of the Salmon River, and, and I should just say for people who don't know, this would be along um, the, the Salmon River flows into the Klamath River um, near the town of Orleans along Highway 96, which is you know, north of north of Hoopa and um, sort of north um, northeast of Arcata and Eureka. Um, so in that river... There's low elevations at the, you know, along the river, and then but there's mountain peaks. Um, the highest um, peak is uh, I think Thompson Peak in the Trinity Alps is about nine thousand feet, and the north side of that mountain drains into the Salmon River. There's actually a glacier there. It's the last glacier left in the um, North Coast Range of California. There's actually a pretty interesting research going on on the fate of that glacier and it definitely is declining but it's still there which is pretty incredible that we still have a glacier um and so in the salmon river there, there's a lot more snow and so whereas in 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 coastal 
rivers like Mendocino County, the flows in the river, you know, they, they, as soon as it stops raining, right, the flow starts, starts dropping. And so that might be around, say maybe April, something like that stops raining or stops a lot of rain. And then the flow just declines and declines and declines. When you have snow, snow is kind of like this magic, magic, irreplaceable thing. Or what it does is it holds that water instead of running off right away it holds it for a month or two months or three months or however long that takes to melt and then it goes down so it's sort of having having a good snowpack is kind of like having a bunch of rain that's falling in 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 april may june july or even august in, in some places and so it's this really unique um water stores that is really handy for both for for people and for and for the fish and so in the salmon river um the flows can stay higher when there's good snowpack the flows will stay higher much later into the year and you can still have pretty good flows there you know in 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 july in a in a high snowpack year and so what's been happening in the, in the salmon river is as the climate has gotten warmer the snowpack is declining and so you still have snow falling at the highest elevations but kind of those those middle elevations like the you know, 5,000, 6,000 foot elevation, 4,000 foot. There's kind of been a shift where there's more rain there and less snow now. And so part of what that's really interesting that you actually noticed the increases in the Salmon River um, water temperatures just, you know, going there and swimming there because um, there's been really good um, monitoring program there from the Salmon River Restoration Council and the Forest Service and the Karuk tribe where they you know, put these little sensors and, and measure the water there. It's pretty inexpensive and, and easy to do. Sometimes hard to get out to the sites to, to do it, but you just have to place these little sensors in, in the water. And it definitely has gone up. The temperatures have increased, um, especially places like the South Fork of the Salmon River, which um, you know, previously had really high, nice snowpack consistently from, from year to year, and now it's becoming more variable. And so in a high snowpack year, the south fork of the Salmon River is just ice cold, you know, all year. And then in a drought year, it warms up really quick. I think I want to say that the differences in the, the maximum uh, summer temperature is like 8 degrees Celsius, which is like, you know, um, what is that in, in Fahrenheit? Like 18 degrees or something like that Fahrenheit difference between a drought year and a high snowpack year. So that, that Salmon River is really, it's one of the most... It's one of the rivers that's most affected, where its temperature is most affected by the snowpack. And so that's really, I think, what you're, what you're seeing there. Um, and that's unfortunate because, uh, you know, the Salmon River has this really special species of salmon called the Spring Run Chinook salmon, which is you know, really important to a lot of people, but most particularly is the Karuk, Karuk tribe. has you know, historically one of their main food sources. And that kind of salmon only lives in areas that get snowmelt. The, the salmon uh, migrate up in the springtime, actually, and they sort of ride that, that snowpack and they're able to you know jump up waterfalls and things during the high flow year. And so as the as the snowpack declines, the, the population of those spring-run salmon are, are running into to trouble. That's so interesting. Um, seems like we have another caller on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and take their call. All right, you're on... about that looks like we lost him well 
try again. Um, Talk for too long. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Uh, It might be my user error, quite frankly. Um, So uh, I wanted to, while we're waiting, um, I wanted to ask you uh, a question kind of related to what we were just talking about with, um, you know, kind of... um, Force management and and you had brought up uh, fire suppression and I know yes. one of the things that you've studied is how actual the actual wildfire smoke can benefit um, summer stream temperatures and it's my understanding that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong but there actually was a, a traditional land use practice that a lot of the tribes of California or some tribes of California. Um, implemented where they would intentionally burn um, and impart to uh, benefit these uh, salmonid species in the summer. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how wildfire smoke benefits stream temperature and how um, that was used uh, as a land management tool. Yeah. So as you mentioned, fire was, was, you know, probably one of the main the most important uh, tools for for native peoples for for managing the the landscape and um, to throw out some interesting statistics up, you know, it, um, there's been researchers who have sort of reconstructed the fire history of of, of California, um, and their estimates are that you know in an average year, you know, and say the you know the 1817 1800s when the um, or early 1800s when the native people were were in full control of the land management in California that about 4 million acres of the state would burn in any given year, which I think is about maybe 10% of the area would burn every year on average. And, um, you know, in many, uh, up until the last few years, <laughs> we were we were coming in more like maybe 500,000 acres um, per year. And then even in, um, I think last year was, you know, the most most acres burned in recorded um, history in the last, you know, 100 years or so. And that year was the first year that we got up to about that 4 million acres burned, which was kind of the average historical for California. And so obviously, you know, the fires that burned last year and that burn regularly now are a different kind of fire, really, than the the fire that we would have had with the native peoples and and natural lightning storms back um, hundreds of, of years ago, where, you know, now due to a, a century of, of people trying to, you know, essentially put out every fire that starts as, as soon as it can, that's totally changed the, the structure of the of the forests and, and you know, the fires in, in combination with, with climate change have been more, more intense and more severe. And so, you know, um, now when, they, when, when areas burn, they produce much more smoke probably than, than when fires are more frequent. But so that, that smoke that is produced um, essentially forms uh, like a cloud and it it um, blocks solar radiation and, and, and sends it back up into the atmosphere and, and protects it or protects the streams from that solar radiation. And that cooling effect can actually be um, quite strong. And, and some of you will probably just notice, you know, changes in air temperature on the really smoky days. Um, I don't know, probably you, probably every every single person listening probably remembers uh, that day in, um, you know, early mid-September last year where the sun basically uh, never came out anywhere on the north coast of, of California. It was almost dark all day. And you remember how, how cool it was that day. Um, 
that's kind of the you know most extreme case but um it, any amount of smoke you know provides some amount of, of cooling and so um you know the native peoples use use fire in a lot of ways one was for maintaining um you know promoting the the type of vegetation that they that they wanted to um promote elk and, and deer populations or to um you know enhance acorn production that type of stuff um, and they also use fire in their ceremonies and one of the really interesting things is that a lot of the um i don't know about in mendocino county but i know uh the Yurok tribe at the mouth of the Klamath River, and then another tribe up at the mouth of the Rogue River in, in Oregon, whose name I'm not good at pronouncing, so I'm not, not going to try. Um, <laughs> they in there they had ceremonies every year to welcome the salmon home. They had a, they had a spring ceremony and a, and a fall ceremony, and they would do you know the series of, of, of dances and and build this um, uh, kind of like a rock and log weir across the the river to catch salmon. And the last thing they did. Before they before they closed down the the weir to start to start the fishing was they would set the hillsides on fire and they said they did it um, for the purposes of telling the salmon it was time to come home that was a signal to them yeah. and so you know they 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 knew then and, and we've been able to prove now with you know the tools of modern science that that generation of the smoke cools down the water and you know in the fall when the when the temperatures could still be warm that could cool down the water enough that it would um it would trigger a pulse of salmon to swim in that's so interesting so so, so we have another call so i'm gonna s- see if we can oh. get to go online hi um welcome to the ecology uh, hour hello i have two questions please sure go yeah. for it one one question is after all these fires is anybody replanting trees that's my first question. Um, I don't know. And the second question is, I saw um, water from the air. Uh, basically, the fog comes in and um, in Peru and also in Morocco. They made some uh, cloth to catch the fog and turn it into water. So I was wondering, is, is there any idea, like, a, you know create water from the air because every cloud brings water so i was wondering these are my two questions thank you great yeah so um i guess i should take those on sure go (laughs) Um, yeah so on the on the question of the fires in the in in the replanting um not really exactly sure on that i mean just one thing to to point out is that um you know things like um, pines and and douglas firs um if they are if they're killed above ground you know they 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 won't um they won't re-sprout but you know they may have uh cones that have survived and dropped and you know there's some species that are actually fire dependent certain kinds of pines where you know the the cones stay up on the trees and the, and the cones actually won't open unless there's smoke and fire and so um there's some what will naturally regenerate and then there's other things like um you know oak trees and um uh like bushes like like manzanita and ceanothus and things like that that even though the top part of the of the tree or the bush might be killed there's still um you know a strong root under there that will, will re-sprout and so sometimes you might drive through after a fire and it might look like every single thing is dead but then you know if you come back in a year or so you will see some nice regeneration from the from the oaks and the pines um and um 
but you know if you if you if you want to grow um you know pines and firs for timber production and things like that then yeah you might you might need to replant those i think there's a serious question of uh are those trees going to be able to get big enough by the time the next fire comes in um but i think that's what i would say about that one do you have anything to add to that you know no, I, you know, I think you're right. Like, I think this, uh, the ecology of, of a lot of the Western U.S. Um, developed over time to, to have this, to, you know, to have some degree of resiliency when there's uh, small amounts of fire disturbance. And so some plants really do thrive um, post-fire. And I am sure that in certain areas there are um, revegetation and tree planting efforts. But um, yeah, I mean, a natural ecological process will take place and a lot of stump sprouting and a lot of seed is dispersed. Um, I thought the the question about fog was particularly interesting because it made yeah. me think of a redwood tree because that's essentially yeah. what redwood trees do in the summer is filter the fog. Um, so, and I've heard about some interesting, um, uh, you know, ways of capturing water. Similar idea with like um, the condensation of uh, that occurs on like air conditioning units, where people will like funnel that and and capture it and reuse it. Um, so mm -hmm. I think there may be a use there, but I'm not aware of any. So maybe maybe you can respond to that question, Eli. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've heard of that, um, like you, like you said, down in. You know the really really dry places down in, in the South, South American deserts. Um, I'm not aware of anyone. I don't. I don't think it's gotten. I don't think that's been necessary <laughs> on the North Coast. Um, hopefully it, it it won't be. But it's kind of it's kind of an interesting idea. But yeah, on the on the redwoods, I I'm not sure this number is right, but I want to say that they did some research in at the Casper Creek um, experimental water station there, watershed station. I think they found that you know that that fog drip in the redwoods can be a lot of water, like 10 to 20 inches of rain per year equivalent um, from the fog. So it can be pretty substantial in certain areas. All right. Well, um, there's about five minutes left before the end of the hour. Um, so if you have a quick question, maybe try. Uh, but Eli, um, just kind of wrapping up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to... Um, you know, kind of follow up on any of the the topics we discussed, and 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 yeah. maybe share some more insight uh, as we we close the hour. Yeah. So um, I would I would I think close here on, on sort of a what 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 do we do note. So I talked about the importance of of storing water, right? So if you're someone who is you know living out in the in the hills, and you're and you're uh, diverting water from a from a creek. Um, if you can, if you if you can afford it, and you can find ways to do it, we would really encourage you to to find ways to you know set up tanks or to build a, a pond that's you know appropriately set up that's not going not going to fail. And you know you want to put it in the right place and want to have the right people build it, and you want to have it be be secure. But um, you know find a way to store to store that summer water or to store the winter water for use in the summer. And then um, so we have another um, minute or so. I wanted to talk about um, climate change. And um, I think one thing that's really important to realize is that, yes, the climate is, is already changing. So it's not a question of, if, are we going to have climate change or are we not? It's how much are we, are we going to have? And really, we, we don't know the answer to that because, you know, the future hasn't happened yet. And, and we don't know if, as a global society, we're going 
get our act together or really how how well are we going to get our act together i don't, I don't think we're going to completely fail but are we going to do you know pretty good are we going to do excellent and so it's really um it's really kind of exciting i think to see how how we're going to respond as a as a global society to this this um this climate challenge because if you know if we don't do something if we don't do something big you know it's going to get really grim but at the same time you know we're the most adaptable species in the history of the planet and the the technology and, and information and tools that we have available now you know we have ways to to generate energy that don't don't produce carbon and so we have we have the tools we just need to to find the you know the political will and the, and the organization to to um to deploy it and so I'm, you know i'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, that we'll get it together and um it's you know every little every little bit counts you know if we end up with uh one and a half degrees of warming or two degrees of warming that's gonna have totally different effects and then we end up with you know three four five six seven eight degrees of warming so it's not i think i guess i would encourage people that you know let's do whatever what's whatever we can and whatever we can do is is going to be helpful yeah absolutely i think you know one thing that i that occurs to me a lot is just and it's not an easy thing for us humans to do but we need to be willing to change and to think about the ways that we function and the ways that we manage our resources in a really different way because the relative like playing field has really changed so we're going to have to strategize and, and, and play the game a little bit differently right um there is one more caller but i do not think we have enough time so i apologize um we won't be able to take that last call um i still have tons of questions for you eli but um but you know Time is short, but I appreciate you uh, joining us tonight. It was wonderful to talk with you. Um, and I would love to maybe have another opportunity to continue this conversation maybe in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. So thanks so much for, for having me in. And thanks to the callers who called in and everyone who listened. And yeah. hi, Mom, if you're, if you're out there listening. Uh, yeah, next time you're in the neighborhood, <laughs> you'll have to give us a call. Yeah. All right, Eli. Well, thanks again. Um, and to all the listeners tonight, thanks for tuning in. Once again, you're listening to KZYX. Good night. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.